I got pulled over the other day. <clears throat> the officer said, uh, Reverend, have you been drinking? I said, Just water, officer. He says, then why do I smell wine? Good Lord, he's done it again. <laughs> you can see at the bottom there, that's a birthday card. I won't tell you who I got it from, but uh, there's a Norwegian that has a great sense of humor. Um, Most of the good memes I get are from... <laughs> also encountered a miracle at QFC the other day. <laughs> here's, an even better, here's an even better joke, if only it were a joke. The wine runs out, water is served. Why, that's the best joke of all. They lift their wine cups as we do in fun when we shout, Adam's ale is the best of all. I'd never encountered that expression, maybe you know it, Adam's ale refers to water, because that's what Adam had to drink. The bridegroom is congratulated by the master of ceremonies who carries the joke further still. Why, you've kept the best wine until now. It requires only a servant going through the room into the kitchen for a wonderful rumor to start. That is the explanation of the water being turned into wine by a leading and very famous theologian and pastor in the 20th century by the name of Leslie Weatherhead. And so Jesus, on this take, manifested his wonderful wit and his disciples believed in him. I mean, what a tragic, what a really deplorable way of treating this passage. If you're going to deny a miracle, just deny it, please. At least have the decency and the respect to take the Bible seriously. I mean, you might expect a new atheist or you might expect an English professor at the university, but a theologian and a pastor. We're back, of course, to the Gospel of John, so if you don't have it open already, let's grab it, John chapter two. This, let me remind you as you're turning to John chapter two that I'm not intending to preach on every passage in John. It's intentional, so when you say, wait a minute, Scott, you skipped over. Yes, I'm not trying to preach it all, and the reason for that is simply that it would take forever for me to get through the Gospel of John. I would probably not survive that long, <laughs> so I don't want you to grow weary of being in the same book forever and ever, so we're going to select highlights from the Gospel of John, and we're gonna look today at the first of Jesus' signs that John calls them. This one is very, very significant because it is the very first miracle we are told that Jesus ever performed. And as we work through this, it's very familiar, I'm sure, to most of you, but as we work through this, I think we'll begin to see and understand some of the great significance of this. And I hope as well, maybe some insight for you that you had not seen before. So John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, 
Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I just want you to notice here at the very outset the whole point of this story so that we don't get lost. As we work through it and we talk about some of the details, excuse me, this week I've had a cold, so I think I'm gonna need a little water this time from moment to moment, so if you'll just bear with me a little bit. (coughs) The whole point of this story is captured there in that last verse. And I want us to be clear from the outset and not get distracted. We're gonna talk about the story, the account here and what's going on. But whatever else you see here and whatever else you might be uh, uh, struck by here, we must not get distracted from the real point, John's point. Why is he telling us this? Verse 11 is very, very clear. Jesus, in doing this, manifested his glory. That's the point of this miracle. It's quiet, it's behind the scenes. Based on what we are told, most of the wedding party had no idea what happened. And yet, there were those who did know and saw and believed. Though it was quiet, though it was unobtrusive, Clark Kent, for just a moment, is kind of pulling open his shirt a little bit. And people are seeing who this really is. All right, let's look now at what we're seeing here in John chapter two. First thing, Jesus went to a wedding. This is why we study New Testament Greek, so I can bring these brilliant insights to you. (laughs) But there's more here than meets the eye. Notice it says there on the third day. Now, some people look for symbolism here. Obviously, it was on the third day that he rose, and people will look for symbolism on the fact that it's the third day, but I think this really misses the point. If you go back into chapter one, as we're going to do, so just flip back to chapter one, you'll see there's a series of days that are being recorded here. John chapter one, verse 19, is where the actual now life of Jesus begins to unfold. One to 18 is the preface that we've looked through. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All the unpacking of that in 118, setting up the scene for what this book is all about. But in verse 19, then we're introduced to the ministry of John the, the Baptist. And there he's beginning his public work and he's calling people to repent and get ready and be baptized. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is here, which means Messiah is coming. And so the Jerusalem priests sent some people out, or leaders sent some priests and Levites out to check on him, ask him who he is, what, what, who he's claiming to be. That's what we read in that first chunk. And then if you're looking there in chapter one, verse 29, it says, the next day, I just mark this, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's a very rich and powerful statement from John the Baptist of who Jesus is. Then in verse 35, then the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And so you've got this succession of days. I want you to notice in this day, one of the two 
who heard John speak following and followed Jesus was Andrew. And then Andrew goes and gets Peter. Now, you notice two people heard Jesus. One of them was Andrew and got Peter. That's three people. One's unnamed. I'm convinced it was John. I'm convinced because John normally doesn't name himself or he refers to himself kind of obliquely like the disciple who Jesus loved. But the other reason I'm convinced this was John is because we're gonna see at the wedding of, at Cana, the disciples that he had called were with him. And that has all the marks, that account that we just read has all the marks of an eyewitness account that a disciple who was actually there and saw it and heard it is writing it for us. So I'm convinced that we've got three disciples here. One's unnamed, John, Andrew, Peter. Then we find in verse 34, or 43, I mean, there's another next day. See, there's a succession of these next days. And the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. That's up in the north. And he found Philip, disciple number four, and said, follow me. And then Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. And we have disciple number five. And so to this point in Jesus' ministry, there are five men that he's called and who are following him. So when we come into chapter two, verse one, it says, and on the third day, it's just part of this flow of days that John is recounting. No symbolism. What's significant about this, and I really want you to catch this, is John clearly, but subtly, without making a big noise about it, John is clearly indicating he is remembering specific events. This is real history. The reason this is so significant is John is often described as the spiritual gospel. And the critics often look at John and say, John is so theologically driven, this cannot be historically reliable. You read the first three, and yes, at least we have the fingerprints of history, but when you get into John, it's all about the word who was with God and was God, claiming to be equal with the Father, and therefore, this is a lot of theology being read back into the life of Jesus. And yet, when you read John carefully like this, you see John is looking back, and he's remembering specific days. So it's a very quiet, subtle way in which And I don't think John is necessarily thinking, oh, people are gonna doubt that I'm writing history here. He's just writing history. He's just writing what he experienced. And so as we read about this succession of days, John is remembering and telling us things that he experienced. Look again at verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. That's also interesting. The mother of Jesus was there. John never names Mary in his gospel. We don't know really why. We have to surmise. And sometimes we talk about being in the white spaces. Some some of what we're talking about today is in the white spaces. I just want you to know that. And we have to guard ourselves when we're in the white space. I mean, between the lines, we're, we're surmising, we're guessing, we're reasonably trying to understand what probably was taking place. We have to be careful and guard that we don't try to camp there too much or make too much of the the surmise. We don't build theology on it. We don't make strong application on it. Why Why doesn't John ever name Mary? Well, one reasonable surmise is that Mary 
And John understood this, and we're gonna see this right here in this particular instance in the beginning of his gospel. John understood that Mary is already receding into the background. And she is not the focus of things. That even in the life of Jesus, understand now, it's still true for us and our families that mother plays a big role in the lives of children. My mother, very important in my life. But Jesus uniquely Though this is his mother, understand in an ancient culture even more so. Probably by this point, Joseph is dead. We don't hear about him anymore, and it seems like he's not around, probably not living anymore. Mary would have been in a position of real authority even over her adult son, and yet, as we'll see here in this particular instance, in this particular uh, occasion, Jesus is beginning to or it already probably has separate himself. That he is answering to a greater authority. What he does is now longer determined not by familial relationship, but by his, the will of his Father in heaven. But we are told, despite the fact that Mary isn't named, we're told that there was a wedding and that Jesus' mom is there. <laughs> this suggests that probably at very least they're at the, 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 the wedding of a friend or friends of the family. Cana is about nine miles from, Gal, uh, from Nazareth where they live. Nine miles, remember, we're not talking about a world where you just hop in the car and go. Nine miles away is a good trek for people in those times. And so it's very probable that They're at the wedding of at least a friend. It could even be a family member. Mary's involvement in the the question of the wine and and knowing that it had run out when most of the guests apparently never got inkling of the fact that the wine had run out. Mary knew, Mary goes to Jesus. She may have been involved actually in serving, preparing perhaps the feast itself. And so she could have been a family member. Now, John doesn't tell us all this. It's not the point necessarily of the passage. But... Here we have a wedding and we find that Mary is there and Jesus is also there. Jesus has only called five people. He has not yet done a miracle, not in any public way that would bring notice to him. He's not there because he's the famous new uh, claimant to, to be Messiah. He's invited probably because he is a friend of the family or perhaps even a relative. But still, Here's the real, I think, significant thing for us at this point. Jesus went to a wedding. Jesus participated in the affairs of life. Jesus celebrated. Jesus honored the occasions of life. And as far as we can tell from everything we read in all four gospels, Jesus lived the fullness of life and participated in it. Why is this important for us to note here? It's because everything Jesus does is showing us who God is. Jesus was not an ascetic. Jesus was not a hyper-spiritual person who felt that a wedding was beneath his dignity or beneath the importance of what he was about. Sometimes we can get a little super spiritual. And we can think that, wow, wait a minute. 
the world is dying in a desperate need of a savior. We don't have time for, when I was just getting started out in my pastoral ministry, I wasn't pastoring or preaching at the time. I was working in a church, going to seminary. Remember a man said to me one time, even about, we, we were, this was back in the days when it was, at least in my church circles, it was not common to have Bible studies. I mean, you went to the service, you went to the Sunday school, you went to the prayer meeting on Wednesday, but Bible studies didn't really exist, at least in my circles. And I'm a young adult attending seminary. Our church has about 30 young adults. They're hungry for the word of God. At this point in time, some of you will recognize this, John MacArthur was becoming a known teacher in Southern California. People were hearing him saying, let's do this. Let's get into the word like this. And I remember we were talking about that and one man said to me, what do you need Bible studies for? People are dying and going to hell. He said that to me. In other words, there are important things to do. We can't be fooling around with this stuff that doesn't matter, like going to a wedding. So when you start to, if you ever get sort of drawn into that kind of hyper-spiritual kind of thinking or you're wrestling with it or wondering if it's good or right to do this or to do that, let's go back to the old question, what would Jesus do? Better, better question, what did Jesus do? And Jesus participated in the fullness of life. In fact, what was the slam on Jesus? Do you remember? The slam on John the Baptist was, this guy's a freak. This guy is so out there. He's got a demon. What was the slam on Jesus? He's a party animal. He's a drunkard and a glutton. That was the slam on Jesus. I come eating and drinking. You know, John is fasting. <laughs> and you say he has a demon. I'm eating and drinking, you say I'm a glutton and drunkard. Now, make a mental note of that. Jesus was accused of being drunkard. Just make a mental note of that, because we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's not because he drank grape juice, okay? All right. But the point here is just to say, Jesus shows us God and everything he does. What, what would God be like, or what does God have and expect from human life. Well, let's not base that on some sort of human wisdom that loses its way. Base it on the truth and the reality of Jesus and how he lived his life and on what the word of God teaches us. Weddings are hugely significant events in the life of any family. And Jesus honored this wedding by being present. I don't think we have a huge problem with this at Crossway, but the temptation does sometimes arise for us to kind of, in our own wisdom, think in a way that loses track of biblical instruction. So Jesus attended a wedding. At this wedding, second thing, is Jesus rescued the groom's family. In this case, opposite for us, who provides the reception in a wedding? It's the bride's family, right? Dad of the bride, right? Spends all the big bucks, right, Larry? Okay. It's the groom in this case. It's the groom in this case that is responsible. And by the way, wedding receptions in this culture often lasted a week. And they were major. I mean, you understand how important a wedding is to a bride. In this culture, even more so. So when we read verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. A little bit difficult for us to hear the panic here. 
There, she's not coming up and saying, hey, you know, the wine ran out. Can you run down to the store? There's, this is serious. This is a crisis for the family of the groom. This is a culture that in sociological terms we identify as an honor-shame culture. Our culture is not like this. It's hard for us to kind of get inside the skin of a culture like this because we don't see life out of our eyes this way. We don't feel inside of our bones life in this way. The basic difference between a culture like ours and a culture like this is in our culture, the individual is paramount. What I think and what I believe and what I value is the most significant issue. But in a culture like that, in fact, it's most cultures in the world, the cultures we visit in India are like this as well. In most cultures, it's not the individual. It's the group. It's the family. It's the village. It's the tribe. It's the order to which you belong. I think maybe in our, in our Western mindset, based on the movies we see and so on, one of the more popular images we would have of a, a shame or honor culture would be the, the Japanese samurai. If you have failed in some way, if you have shamed or brought shame on your master or your order in some way, you, the only honorable thing for you to do would to be commit Harry Carey, fall on your sword. It's really hard for us to relate to why anybody would take something that seriously. But here in this particular situation, this is a major life event. And for this groom to not have provided adequately for the guests in this way would be to shame especially not only his own family, but especially his bride and the family of his bride. And this would be a great insult and a great offense. In fact, there's some evidence that the family of the bride could even bring legal action to protect and preserve their honor in a case like this. And so when Mary comes and says, the wine's run out, this is serious. This is a crisis for this Groom. They're in a village here. This is not a major city. This isn't Jerusalem. It's not even Nazareth. This is a village. They may have been a rather poor family. It may have been difficult for them. They didn't just run out of an individual beverage and say, wow, we maybe should have gotten another case. It's the beverage. This is what you drink. This is what you provide for a feast. And now we're falling short suddenly. What is going to happen? Now let's look at how Jesus responds to this. We'll look at first his response to Mary, but then he, as we know, he goes ahead and does it, which is a reflection, I think, of his great tenderness and compassion. But first in verse four, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now right away we've got to stop because that just sounds cold, doesn't it? In, in, in our, to our ears, Talking to mom, you say, woman? <laughs> I mean, I, I only say that to any of you women when I'm sassing you a little bit. <laughs> My daughter, pretty early in her life, I think she's maybe 12, is, dad, don't call me girl. I mean, there are ways in which you don't say this, right? That's not so. It's not rude. It's not 
harsh or cold in this culture. It would be a little bit like our saying to our own mother, yes, ma'am. It's respectful, but notice, we can't miss this because it's absolutely true what you're seeing. It's not rude, it's not harsh or cold, but it clearly is reflecting, and this is what I was alluding to a few moments ago, it's clearly reflecting a little bit of distance, a little bit of separation. Literally what Jesus says to her is, what is it to you and to me? He's saying to her, ma'am, this isn't our problem. Why are you involving me in this? What are you dragging us into this for? Now on the surface, that does sound a little bit, almost, it, it could sound, it could be taken a little heartless, but Jesus on mission is he, is, what is he saying to his mother? I think what he's saying to his mother, he's saying two things here. The first thing I think he's saying to his mother is, and I assume, not everyone does, and you study this out, you'll discover this, not everyone assumes that Mary knows all the power that Jesus has, but I think she does. I think she knows exactly who he is. I think that's why she comes to him. She's appealing to him to do something about the situation. She may not know how he would do it, what he would do exactly, but she's appealing to him to do something about the situation. I think the first thing she's saying to him is, mom or ma'am, I do not possess what I possess. I do not have the powers I have just to go around taking care of everyone's difficulties. I mean, I think he's challenging her to think about. But then he says to her what? What's the next thing he says? My hour has not come. My hour has not come. What does he mean by this? Everywhere else you read this expression, his hour had not yet come, or my hour is not yet. In the Gospel of John, it's looking forward to his glorification. But specifically, you have to note that that glorification doesn't just mean when he goes to heaven and sits on the throne and is exalted, it includes his cross. Look, for example, on screen here, John chapter seven, verse 30. They were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Later on, he's gonna pray. That's one section we definitely will do in the Gospel of John. Later at the, in the last night before he is crucified, he prays, often called the high priestly prayer of Christ in chapter 17. And he prays and pours out his heart. The hour has come for you to glorify me. And that means his pathway to glory runs directly through the cross. It's a little early here for the cross to be in view. For him to perform a miracle isn't going to get him crucified. The way I take Jesus here when he says, my hour has not yet come, is he is essentially saying, it is not yet time for me to present myself to Israel as their Messiah. Performing open miracles would be laying claim to messiahship. It'd be making notice, giving notice 
that the Messiah is here. And so as Mary comes to him and asks, or informs him and implying, I think, that, that she would like him to do something about the situation, he is saying to her, it's not yet time for me to openly declare myself. Now what's striking as we move forward here? What is striking in the next verse, verse five? Mary does not hear a no. <laughs> At least a, not an absolute no. <laughs> yeah? Whatever she heard, she's thinking there's still some hope here. See, in verse five, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, what would give Mary the place to instruct the servants? Well, she's an, maybe just an honored family member, honored friend. Maybe also she's part of the uh, preparing of the feast itself. Verse six now, the miracle or the sign itself. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. If you go back into the Old Testament and you read the law of Moses there, there are many places in which they are to wash. If they've, if they've touched this or this has happened, gone through this circumstance of life, then they are to wash and sometimes wait a number of days in order to be ceremonially pure in order to go to the tabernacle, the temple, and to offer sacrifice or to worship. And so they would have in homes these vessels to store the water for purification. Apparently, they're not completely full. Might have been empty altogether. I assume there must have been some water in them. But Jesus instructs them to fill them all up and fill them to the very brim there were six of them, and they hold 20 or 30 gallons. Do the math. Six times, 20, got it? We're talking about 120 to 180 gallons, not bottles, gallons. This is a serious production of wine. What Jesus does here is not only rescue the groom and his family from a terrible shame, a terrible insult to the bride and her family and to the guests. But he also blesses this couple with an amazingly generous gift. Because the wine has run out, we're probably nearing the end of this week-long festivities. We don't know how many people would have been there, but 120 gallons of wine is probably not gonna be consumed at the very end, and they would therefore have that. They could not only use it for themselves as a family, but they could sell it as well. And for a poorer country family, an amazing gift. Jesus' heart for people and his tenderness and his compassion he was not required by his mission to rescue them from this wedding failure. This is the only miracle that doesn't really overtly express the kingdom the way all the rest of them do. The healings, the exorcisms, and those kinds of miracles. But this one is very quiet. This one is very behind the scenes, and it primarily addresses a problem, a social crisis for a family. Let's talk about the wine. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but there are those who want to argue 
that this must have been non-alcoholic wine because Jesus wouldn't produce alcoholic wine. Let me just make a few comments. First of all, the word for wine here is the normal word in Greek for wine. It's the same word you read in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And it's the word you would use all over the place. Now, on the face of it, just think with me, on the face of it, when you use the word wine, and this is the normal word for wine, what are you talking about? I think you're talking about wine, okay? Last time... <laughs> I'm a simple man, I told you at the beginning. I'm just an ordinary guy with... <laughs> Some people will appeal to Isaiah 65, verse eight, to say that wine was not fermented or alcoholic for the godly people who drank this wine. If Isaiah 65, verse eight, contains this phrase, the new wine is found in the cluster. Meaning you got the cluster of grapes there, and the, 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 the juice is still in the grape. It has not yet been crushed or pressed out. Therefore, it's unfermented. Now, there's a couple of problems with this argument. First of all, this word here translated new wine is a different word than the normal word for wine. In Hebrew, you have the word torish, which refers to new wine, and typically it refers to wine that is new, meaning it hasn't aged yet but it is still typically fermented. So it's, a, it's, it's really stretching a verse to try to prove something. The normal word for wine in Hebrew is yayin, and that would be the equivalent of the, the word used in John chapter two, which is Greek. I'll show you a couple passages just to show you that um, even new wine can be inebriating. Hosea 4 verse 10, they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. The grape juice doesn't do that. Judges chapter 9 verse 13, but the vine, this is a parable, so it's going to sound a little odd taken out of context, but just get the point about what it's making about wine here. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine, that's Torish, the new wine, shall I leave my new wine that cheers God and men? That's interesting. And go hold sway over the trees. This word Torish is also used in the Talmud of normal alcoholic, that is, fermented wine. So Isaiah 65 verse eight is really a stretch to try to build an entire case that wine in biblical times was not fermented. Third part of the answer I wanna give you here is found in verse 10 of John chapter two. Just look at it. This ought to settle the case by itself. We don't really need to really go much further than this. John chapter two verse 10, this is the... Um, Master of ceremonies here, speaking to the groom, everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, see that word right there, drunk freely? The Greek word clearly means to get drunk, clearly. That is not disputed by anybody. And you can look it up and you can study it. When people have gotten drunk, then the poor wine. Now, he doesn't mean everybody's three sheets to the wind. He doesn't mean everybody's plastered. What he means is after they're starting to feel the effects of the alcohol, what happens? Taste buds aren't quite as sensitive. That's when you bring out the cheaper stuff. You got a week-long deal going on here. You're not gonna serve the premium stuff all week. You'll start out with the premium stuff. And then when the taste buds have kind of gotten a little dulled, you'll bring out the more ordinary wine. And Jesus, or, or, or the, the groom apparently has done just the opposite. 
He's serving the best stuff these guys have ever tasted at the end. So this wine that was being served at this wedding clearly was fermented wine. Now I'm just gonna show you one passage on the subject of drinking in general. Like I said, this is not the subject, not the point today, but it is Jesus producing wine and this is a question that some people want to discuss or want to debate about. Deuteronomy chapter 14, it's a passage I don't hear talked about very much on this discussion. I'm surprised by that because it, to me it's a major passage on the subject of whether it is permitted for godly people to drink alcoholic beverages. Deuteronomy chapter 14, God is instructing his people about tithing. This is Old Testament Israel. And so tithing means you're gonna bring a portion of everything, the flock. If you got 10 lambs, you're gonna bring one. If you got 100 bushels of wheat, you're gonna bring 10. There's a tithing of everything you have. And he's instructing them, the people who live at a distance from the temple, they can't be bringing all these animals and all these bushels and all this stuff is too much to transport. So he basically says, turn it into cash, take the cash to Jerusalem, where the temple is, and then there buy what you're gonna need for your worship. Now look what he says here. Verse 25, you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. There's a third term used in the Old Testament. And if you're gonna form a, a view, a theology, an understanding of God's perspective on drinking, you need to study three terms in Hebrew. Torish, yayin, and then this word for strong drink. But look what he says, this is God speaking. Spend the money for whatever you desire, including wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Yes, there are plenty of warnings against the dangers of alcohol. There are plenty of warnings against the abuses of alcohol. Drunkenness is sin. But clearly, drinking fermented beverages is not prohibited. Jesus produced real wine for this wedding. All right, enough said about that. I just wanted to take a moment with that and be clear about what the scriptures are saying here. So Jesus went to a wedding and Jesus rescued the groom's family. It's act of great tenderness and compassion, even though this isn't really what it's, his ministry is all about. And what he would do miracles to be for is just to kind of go around and, and sort of address everybody's problem. And plumbing's broken. Oh, perform a miracle. Fix your plumbing. Great tenderness, great compassion of Jesus. Now we come to the real main point, as I said from the, at the beginning. Third and most significant insight here is he manifested his glory. That's what this account is about. People look for symbolism in this account. Many people, many scholars, many commentaries, you read about Jesus is demonstrating that the new wine of the gospel is replacing the water of the law or the abundance of the kingdom and all of these kinds of things. And I'm sorry, but I just don't think that's the point at all. John's point is he manifested his glory. That's John's point. If you look back at chapter one, verse 14, we put it on the screen for you. 
But verse 14, we saw this in the, in the uh, prologue to the gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We have seen the shirt come open. We've seen the S on his chest. We know who this is. That's what's going on here. Jesus is displaying his glory. This is one of the reasons I think that, as I said, John is the unnamed disciple in chapter one is because this looks like somebody who was there. He, he remembers words. He remembers, he might have been standing, he was standing apparently close enough to Jesus that he saw and heard Mary come up and say, they're out of wine. He heard Jesus say, ma'am, what is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. And he, saw, he heard him and struck the, pre, the, the, the servants to fill up the, the water pots. He saw what happened. He watched it and he saw. And at that time, I, I think this is why this is here. This is not a public miracle. This is not for the crowds to see. This is only seen apparently by some servants, disciples, Mary, a handful of people really know what has happened here. But somebody saw it and was deeply, deeply impacted by it. That's why John wrote his gospel. You remember what he said? The very, toward the very end, the end of the second to last chapter, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. That's striking when you read chapter two in this otherwise minor miracle. John could have chosen from a whole host of miracles, but he chose this one because that is where he first saw the glory of Jesus breaking out. And he believed. So Jesus did many others, but these are written so that you may believe. And so we see now the final statement in this passage. His disciples believed in him. They saw his glory and they believed. That account is really pressing this upon us. This is what the account is supposed to say to us. Are you seeing the glory of Jesus? Are you responding in faith? Are you believing that's what the impact, this is why John wrote the book, so that you may believe. I want to reflect for a few moments, just share a few thoughts on believing because of a miracle account or the accounts of the miracles. I wonder if we have challenges, some of us anyway. We read this story, you read any of them, Jesus walking on the water, feeding 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus makes a great point of this. If you don't believe my words, if you can't believe me, believe the works that I'm doing. Why should we believe this man is who he claimed to be? Lots of reasons can be given. You can look at fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You can look at what's the key and greatest proof of all? It's the resurrection. But also Jesus points to the works and John himself points to the works and John himself wrote this gospel saying, I've written these signs so that you may believe. Maybe a challenge for us in our modern world to read an account like this 
and believe. And so I just want to reflect on this for a few moments. Number one, the storybook effect. What I mean by this, especially for those of us who grew up in the church and grew up in the Sunday school, if you were brought up in the Sunday school as I was, as Roberta was, you were hearing these stories as a little child, all your life brought up to hear these stories. You, back in the day, flannel graph, you know, I don't know what they use upstairs anymore, I haven't asked them, but it's probably not flannel graph. <laughs> It can have the impact on us that they just become stories. A little red, little red Riding Hood, Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, it's just a story. And, and, and I'm not, I don't mean it's willful, and I don't mean it's conscious even. I don't know, and I'm just, I'm just suggesting for you to think about this and, and just kind of check in your own heart if there's any kind of uh, challenge for you. Say, well, I read these stories and I struggle. Well, understand they, people struggled then. Not everybody who saw miracles believed. When, La, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, do you know what the Jewish leadership said? That's the most, to me, I know I've said it before, some of you have heard it, I'm repeating, but that blows my mind that he could raise a man from the dead. And the leadership of the nation says, this man is doing many miracles. If we don't get rid of him, we're gonna lose our power. The Romans will come and take it away. Wow. By the way, there are lots of reasons people don't believe, okay? There are a lot of motivations of heart that keep people from believing. So you may read an account like this and you may struggle to believe because people saw miracles with their own eyes and struggled to believe, but... I'm just suggesting for you, just check your thinking, just kind of examine your thoughts. Is, has there been some kind of a storybook effect that creates a sense of unreality? You're used to childhood stories, you don't think they're real, and the stories of the Bible just kind of take on, especially the, the miracle stories, just kind of take on a sense of unreality like any other story. What would you do about that? Because I, this has been part of my experience, that's why I'm speaking to this. I grew up in the church. I think it takes focused attention and thought to begin with, that you really examine. Part of the issue I think that we face with people is not that they've examined all of the evidence and all the claims of Christ and rejected them, it's that they don't care, because they haven't even thought about it. They're not interested. And I wonder if sometimes for our young people who end up walking away from the faith, Maybe even stay in the church, could be either one. Whether they even give it serious thought much. So it starts there at least with seriously thinking through. This is Jesus, this is what he did, this is real. And then ultimately, you're gonna have to seek the grace of God. You're gonna have to pray, you're gonna have to ask God if you find yourself being challenged, you say, I have difficulty with some of these things. Just seriously seek God by his grace to open your eyes and open your heart to know and understand the things you find difficult in the Bible. A second reflection, the naturalistic air we breathe. By that I mean we live in a culture that is naturalistic in its outlook. Naturalistic means 
Everything happens by natural processes. There's no such thing as miracle. We just breathe that air from the time you start going, going to school, learning the ABCs. You're in breathing the air of naturalism. And it's assumed everywhere we go, every special we see on, by National Geographic, it's just assumed. It's part of the worldview that our culture exists in. Let me ask you this question. Who is biased? Who is biased, the believer or the unbeliever? When I was young, it was assumed that the believer was biased. And the unbeliever was open-minded, willing to face the hard facts. The, un- the believers just sort of protecting their position, closing their eyes, wanting to believe what they want to believe. Well, fortunately, one good outcome of postmodernism, whatever you think of that, one good outcome of postmodernism has gotten us over this arrogance. What we now understand more clearly and embrace is that everybody is coming from a point of view. Everybody's biased, in other words. And so the question I would simply ask, especially those of you that are wrestling with some of these questions, is our modern belief, or disbelief, I should say, our modern disbelief in miracles, is it objective and unbiased? The answer is no, it's coming from a particular point of view. You've already started with the conclusion that either God does not exist or he does exist, but he never acts in the natural realm. You've started there. Just, I would just ask you to crack it open enough to think about this. If it's true that God does not exist, then miracles couldn't happen. And the person who believes they did, like me, were deceived. Or if you're a deist, meaning, yes, there's a God, but he made the world to run on natural, by natural means, and he doesn't monkey with it then miracles don't happen and we are deceived. On the other hand, if God does exist and he created this world, he has perfect power to do what he wills in this world and to believe that no miracle ever happens then is to be deceived. Where are you starting? And are you starting there with real reason or just because it's the naturalistic air you have breathed all your life? A third reflection, science and miracles. I'm gonna have to rush through a little bit of this. It's common for people to say today that science has proven that miracles don't happen. I'm just very interested where we would find this proof. Which branch of science has proven this? Is it biology? Is it geology? Is it paleontology, fossils? Is it astronomy? Is it physics? What branch of science has, made, has proven this? And what's more to the point is where can I find this proof? You would think such an amazing proof that has altered human understanding would be written up somewhere in a scientific journal or a great book that is very famous and everybody has read it. And so please come and show me this book. I don't know where it is. I must have missed it in my searching through Amazon to buy my books. Sometimes when people talk about a scientific study of a miracle like this, what they really mean is a naturalistic explanation. A scientific explanation means, well, how can we explain this naturally? 
Think with me for a moment. What would, what would a scientific study of this miracle look like? We would need Jesus here to repeat it. And then we'd have to have scientists there to check the water before and check what's there after, carefully watching, carefully monitoring, cameras all over the place to see that there's no trickery, and then they can record and examine before and after. That would be truly scientific. It's impossible to scientifically study something that cannot be repeated. That's just not possible. So I say this to you simply to say there's all sorts of claims about science that are not well thought out. It isn't science, it's naturalism that takes us down these paths. One last reflection here is, do we have reason to question the integrity of the man who wrote this? Do we have reason to question his intellectual integrity? Do we have reason to question his moral integrity? Some people don't think John wrote this, but I don't care who you think wrote it. I'm guessing all of you would accept that John wrote it. Plenty of evidence that John did write it. It's beside the point. Whoever wrote it, do we have reason to question his integrity, intellectually or morally, that he's dishonest? If he's not dishonest, then he must be deceived if he's writing something that never happened. I like what, the way Peter put this. This is coming right out of the pages of the New Testament. For those of us who may think sometimes, well, back in those days, they were more superstitious. They were more easily convinced that these kinds of things could happen. We, we know better now. Listen to what Peter wrote. 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. They knew the difference 2,000 years ago between a cleverly devised myth and a historical fact. That's another modern prejudice that needs to die. Regardless of the truthfulness of the earliest witnesses, you know, whatever we may think, we want to say about their character, their honesty, and all those kinds of things, here is an, an undeniable fact. Many of them were willing to pay with their lives to declare the name of Jesus. You think about that. Chuck Colson used to talk about how Watergate convinced him that the resurrection really happened. And what he meant by that, if you don't know your history, Watergate was a presidential crisis with Nixon, okay? If you don't know your history, what he's basically saying there is, here we are, the most powerful people in the world, powerful men in the world, the inner circle of Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, and we could not keep a lie, we could not preserve a lie for two weeks, and nobody was threatened with death. We had absolute power to do as we chose. We could have suppressed, buried, obfuscated all the ways we could have tried to go about this to protect ourselves. We had ample motivation to do it, and we couldn't manage it for two weeks. You're going to tell me people are going to lay down their lives for decades who knew Jesus. So we finish with the real question, the real question of this wedding at Cana. Do you see the glory of Jesus and believe? That's the question. Examine your heart today. See the glory and believe.
Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your help. Thank you for your grace in choosing and using us ordinary instruments. But thank you especially for your word and for its truth. We pray, Lord, that you will open up our eyes to see and to know you in your fullness and your glory. And I just want to pray today for any who are wrestling with these things. And we, we, we pray and we speak to this not to condemn at all, but to understand and to love. If they are wrestling, if any are wrestling, Lord, that you be gracious to them, you work, you cause the light of the knowledge of your glory to shine in their hearts in the face of Jesus. Enable them to see the glory of Jesus today and believe. Strengthen all of our faith. Give us all strong, settled conviction so that when we go out, we can have the courage to live the life you've called us to and to make your son known to this world. Thank you in Jesus' name.